Well, good morning. Um, we're going to just jump right in, I hope. Um, this will be another week where we are having our small group as a big group. Um, so still, still some coronavirus impact with our small group leaders, but we will um, hopefully soon be back to meeting within our small groups to be able to, to discuss a little bit more uh, personally some of these things. But um, we will, for the record, the video will be shut off before we do our discussion. So there's no fear of things that are talked about here going elsewhere. So um, yeah. So um, so as a parent, I pray and hope that I am doing everything I can to prepare my children for life without me. They will move out at some point, I hope. <laughs> they will get married. They will have children of their own. Um, but as we sit at the dinner table, we are regularly reminding our children of the behaviors that will help them in the future. We, we call this, we're making them marryable. Um, it's not uncommon to hear us say, please use your fork instead of your fingers to eat your mashed potatoes. Yes, even still. Or don't play with your cup. It doesn't matter that it's empty. There's still enough in there to make a mess. Yep, just like that. Um, or, or please put your legs down. We don't need to see your knees while we're eating our dinner. And so, so all those are things that we are training our children um, I mean, as we look at Daniel chapter one this week, we're going to see Daniel and his friends. So I'm going to come back to that for the record. But we're going to see Daniel and his friends, these, along with other young men who have been pulled away from all that they knew and while they were still young men. And then they would be tested on what they would do without someone looking over their shoulder. We, we just were joking last night with, with Andrew that we were making him marryable, not dateable. So he, he, we'll have to work on that after. So, um, so those, those tests when, he's, when we're not there to, to remind him of these things. Um, but we're going to jump right in and see what God would have for us in this chapter. So I gave somebody Daniel 1, 1 through 7. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, 
they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Great, thank you. So as a reminder, last week we looked at the overall setting for the book. We saw how God allowed Babylon to overtake his people in Jerusalem because of their continued and repeated disobedience and outright ignoring of his word. Warren Wiersbe, uh, he said, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the Holy Land, disgracing his name. So during this first siege of Jerusalem, the city survived, as did King Jehoiakim, but it was under the control of Babylon, and Babylon took some trophies with them. And, and I did mention this last week, but as part of setting the stage for the whole book of Daniel, I want to point out what Babylon did after the siege. So it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, this is verse 2 again, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ash. I practiced this one, I promise. Ashpenaz, his chief eunuchs, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. And so, what did King Nebuchadnezzar do with the vessels of the house of God? He, he took them. And where did he put them? In, in the house of his God. His God. And so... He took them back to his home and put them into to the house of his God. But this seems like this just little thing, but it's of utmost importance when we're understanding the mindset of King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon had its own religion. They were monotheistic. They had many gods. Uh, we're going to talk more about this as we carry on through the book they would have recognized that the Hebrew God was the big G God as a little G God. They would have known he had power and authority in something, but they had a lot of different gods that did a lot of different things, and, and Yahweh was just one more to add to that list. So why would King Nebuchadnezzar take the vessels from the temple? Yeah, to, to show his, his superiority, his authority, to show it, it was his belief that because he won that battle, his God was stronger than the Hebrew God, than Yahweh God, because he could. And so it was basically, this was this in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, I'm going to take this stuff from this little God and I'm going to pay tribute to my bigger God. That was, that was what he was doing. It was basically he was saying, na 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 my God is better. Right? That's, that's what he was doing. And so we have to remember, this is the mindset that Nebuchadnezzar has 
throughout the throughout the rest of the book this is what we have to remember is what he's thinking about god because he is going to he is going to give us uh, uh, so much that he learns about our god uh, and it but it, but it has to start from this this mindset of of his gods were better than this one so in addition to those vessels from the temple the babylonians also took people as captives uh, when we looked at this passage last week it was the third year of jehoiakim that was 605 bc if you want to in your in your handouts we left you a wide margin so you could even write 605 bc there in your margin just so you kind of know where it is when it is what's taking place that's the whole point of that margin is to make make notes make use of it um do we printed you out a copy so you can you can mark it up um <laughs> and and there are some spots that i will actually ask you to write some things just so we can find them and flip back and forth with them but but this one in 605 bc this was the first of three deportations from jerusalem um if you if you want to flip to your timeline you can you can see the three are marked there ezekiel was was deported with the second group of group of about 10,000 jews in 597 bc and then the final one came along with the destruction of the temple in 586 and I think we touched on those a little bit last week as well. But they were taken from Jerusalem to Shinar, to Babylon. We talked about last week again, that was modern day Iraq. Um, but what are some of the things that uh, verses three and four tell us about the people that were included in this group of captives? What qualities did they possess? You got to say it really loud because I heard something. Wisdom, royal teachability, yeah. Without blemish, young, young and handsome. That's right. This this was meant to strip the nation of its brightest and best. And what we'll soon see, though, is, is this was kind of the first of many but God moments in the book, right? I love those but God moments. We've talked about them all through Ruth last semester. But this was, this was one of those moments where Babylon wanted to take the best from Jerusalem to lessen the importance of that city. But God allowed them to be taken in order to fill a pagan city with men of God. So who, as we go through our, our questions, our uh, five W's and an H, who are the main characters in this passage? Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the king. Who else? Daniel. Daniel. The, chief eunuch. the chief eunuch, Ashpenaz. And then... Somebody started to say him over here. Then there was 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, and th note that there were more than just these four that were taken captive. The, the four, it, that, the first two words there in verse 6 are among these. So there was a larger group than just the four, but these are the four that we're going to learn more about uh, as we go through the book. So they were kind of the four that were, um, that were kind of the important ones. So then, then the Ashpenaz is given a charge at the end of verse 3 to teach them, to teach these captives the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So they were, they were basically taken from their land, taken from their parents because they were told they, I mean, we're, we're told they are youths, taken from their parents, stripped of their culture, and, and the attempt was being made to conform them to the Babylonian worldview. Have you ever heard worldview before, that term before? Worldview is, is just the view of life that we have, and that de determines our approach to life. That's basically just a fancy word for that. So Ashpenaz had to take these Hebrew boys and turn them into Babylonians. That was, that was the, the goal. And, and to do this, he thought that meant he had to take all the Hebrew out of them. But did you catch that it's a three-year process? Three years, three years that they are trained, that they are being assimilated, that they were isolated from their home, isolated from their family, and they were being indoctrinated with the language, the culture, religion, astrology. And, and it gives us this little tidbit here at the end where it says, the chief of eunuchs gave them the names, Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Why do you think that Ashpenaz would change the names of these boys? Taking, taking more Hebrew out of him, them, yeah. In, and, and yeah, as we've talked about, the names in, throughout the Bible, names are of utmost importance. Um, but so it was taking the Hebrew out of them. It was also causing them confusion. Imagine you're, you're 14, 15 years old, and all of a sudden you have to go by a new name. It's throwing them off just enough that they are, are um, it, it's just make one more step in the process of, of taking away something that they've known. But the other, another significant reason is, is the importance of their names. When you look at the name Daniel, Daniel means God is my judge. This is that, it's that E-L, that L, that's big G God. God is my judge. Well, you don't want a name that goes to the Hebrew God that was a lesser God to be one of the people trained to be, to work with the king, right? So they changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect his life. 
Bel was also known as Marduk. He was the chief god of Babylon, by the way. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. Uh, and that was changed to Shadrach. Shadrach meaning command of Eku. Eku was the Babylonian moon god. Mishael, again that El, that, that big G god, who is like God, was changed to Meshach, uh, who is as Aku is. Azariah, the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo or Nego. Nego was the god of art and writing. He was also the god of plants. But I love the fact that throughout the rest of the book, Daniel still refers to himself as Daniel. He did not lose himself in this book. He did not lose himself in the time that he was serving, the time that he was exiled in Babylon. So let's take just a closer look at Daniel before we move on. Hopefully, uh, as part of your homework, you looked at Daniel, you may have started a list of things that you know about him. What are some things that we already know about Daniel? A young, a young teenager, would have been young. Handsome. Handsome. Intelligent. Royal. Would have been royal or noble in some way. The... Um, when it says competent to stand before the king there in verse 4, that means he was well-behaved. His parents taught him how to not eat his mashed potatoes with his fingers and to use his fork. Um, verse 6, <laughs> there was obedience. He was from the tribe of Judah. Um, and based on, based on the language that's used, where it says youths, by the way, he was likely between 12 and 15 years old. And the Persian and Babylonian culture both began this type of education at around 14. So the guess would be he was about 14 years old. So now I just need you to bear with me for a minute because it looks like I'm taking you on same, some crazy path. But we're really going to look at something that, that would have impacted Daniel's childhood. So we're going to look at 2 Kings 22. And I gave some of you some verses from, from this. But, but if we think about, we, we talked last week about the evil King Jehoiakim. This week we're going to take a, a quick look at King Josiah for a minute. If you remember, Josiah was the child king. He became king at age 8. And when he was 26, this part's in uh, 2 Kings 22, he was 26, he set about to repair the temple which had fallen into disrepair after many years of bad kings. And during this process, the high priest Hilkah found the book of the law. The book of the law was the scriptures, or at least what was written up to that point. So this was the Torah, basically those first five books of the Old Testament. And so I gave somebody 2 Kings 22, verse 11. All right. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikam, son of Shatham, Abkor, son of Micaiah, 
chaplain, the secretary, and a sign of the king attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us. Our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Ooh, I read a couple more, didn't I? <laughs> That's okay. That was great. So what did, what did King Josiah do when he heard the word of God? Tore his robes. What does that mean? He was very sad. He was very grieved. Sad and, and grieved, disgusted. That's right. This was their, their way of mourning. Uh, of, he was heartbroken. He had, but, but he was 26 years old, and he had never heard the word of God. I think about that for just a minute. He is the king of God's people, and he had never heard the word of God. And yet it was important to him. There was something because it was important enough to him that, that he saw that the temple was in disrepair and he wanted to, to fix it. He knew that was important. He had already started in some ways with, with taking down the high places and the, the Asherah poles and the things like that. So, so he, all the good that he did to try to rid the nation of idols was purely in his heart and hearing from others. And now, at 26 years old, he's been, he's been the king since he was eight. But now he's 26 years old and he has confirmation from God that this, this is true, this is what needs to happen. So Josiah went on to, to inquire of the Lord through the priest about what he heard. But he also did not stay silent. So I gave somebody 2 Kings 23, verses 1 through 3. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So who all heard the reading of the book? Who, who all heard the, the word of God then? Everybody. It says, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This would have definitely included anyone with power or authority or nobility, like maybe Daniel's parents. Right? Daniel may not have been born yet. He may not have been present to make this covenant himself. But his parents most definitely were. And being of this nobility, this royal blood of some sort... He, he, his parents definitely would have been there, and, and he, then he would have been born shortly after this, and he would have seen all these idols being destroyed. He would have seen all the good that Josiah, the good king, was doing, but his parents 
would have carried on in specifically teaching Daniel the ways of God. Daniel's parents weren't just worried about teaching him how to properly stand in the king's court or how to use a fork when eating his food. They made sure to teach him a worldview that included the Most High God. And so then we're going to see how this goes on to affect the rest of his life, basically. So I gave somebody Daniel 1, 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my heart, king. Then Daniel said to the chief of the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then the appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So what happened in this passage. What happened to Daniel? It's our what question. What happened to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah? What did they do? He was bold enough to say something and to question what they were given. Yeah, they, took he, he was bold and took a stand. Mm -hmm. Right. They took a stand about the food that they were being given to eat. And it says, it says there at the beginning of the, the very beginning of verse 8, but Daniel resolved. He drew a line in the sand, a line that he knew that he would not cross. So I, when I was, oh. Did, Isn't there something, there's, in their law, they are not to eat food that was presented to the idols. We're going to get there. Okay. I promise. <laughs> Sandy's jumping ahead on me. But but I want us to, to take a pause for just a minute because I, I want us to think about him, him resolving that he would not defile himself. And so, so when I was a freshman and sophomore in college, it was the first time that I truly started to study the Bible for myself. I had read the Bible. I had listened to sermons. I had used devotion books, had talked about it, had, you know, my, um, my parents were Christians. We went to church as a kid, but this was the, the first time that it really became mine and not because my parents were looking over my shoulder. Um, I started to question everything and to bring it up against the word. And this was a period of time that God used in me to truly show me where my line was and why it was there. I wasn't living under the convictions of my parents. I wasn't living under the convictions of my church. I had to take my stand for myself. And so 
while I continue to learn to this day, and while I'm, I continue to be faced with additional questions that I need to pray through, and I need to continually find where the line is, um, I know that I must stand on the side of what God wants from me without a concern for the way the world views my stand. I also have to recognize that sometimes my line is going to be different from some other Christians that I love and trust. It does not make one or the other of us wrong or better or worse than the other. It means God has given us slightly different convictions. For example, I do not do laundry on Sundays. It's a choice for me to have a Sabbath rest. I still have to feed my family, so I can't say I'm not going to cook. And I'm not going to just leave the dishes sitting because... But laundry, laundry I can plan, right? I can plan and make it, that's my Sabbath rest. You know, and, and, but in ministry, I'm just going to break it to you. When you're in ministry at a church, Sunday mornings is not your time of rest. You can still worship and you can still have that full experience, but it is not restful. And so, so I had to find my way to make it rest. Um, but just because you may do laundry on Sundays doesn't make you wrong. That was what I needed. That was the conviction that I needed. That's the line I had to draw to set sa Sundays apart as, as a Sabbath rest for myself. I had to give myself permission to not do laundry on Sundays, which does make it interesting when your son needs clothes for Monday. He has to learn quickly how to do the laundry himself, right? But so, so the, the important part is that Daniel drew a line, Hananiah drew a line, Azariah drew a line, Mishael drew a line that they knew they would not cross. Um, their line happened to be about not defiling themselves with the king's food or wine. There are a couple of options for why this might be. Why do you think this might be the case? Sandy's got one of them because she mentioned the, the foods. Um, yeah, the, the pork. They can't eat bacon, right? They can't eat certain, certain foods. What's another option for, for why that might not have, um, and it's okay if you don't know. Because they first offered it to their gods. A lot of times the Babylonians would first offer their food to the gods and then they would eat it. Yeah, so the food and wine had both been dealt with in terms of the worship of their gods. And so in addition to being not clean, not prepared in a clean way, I remember watching an episode of um, one of those remodeling shows on HGTV, and they were, um, they were redoing a house for an Orthodox Jewish family, and they had to have a Sabbath kitchen and, and they had to have timers on their lights and they had to have all these things, but they had to have all these special things about their kitchen for just the way they would prepare food 
not even just so it wasn't even just the food they ate but it was the way they prepared their food and that still just stands out in my mind when i think about the food of the of of the hebrews was that that it was there were specific um, specific directions and 1st Corinthians 8 had not been written yet. 1st Corinthians 8 is where the God takes away some of those restrictions and, and things like that. So, um, And so what steps, what did Daniel do when he was going to be faced with having to cross his line? His his, he wanted to just get rid of the food, and how did he go about doing that? He went and he asked permission. He went and he respectfully and humble, humbly went to the man in charge of him, went to Ashpenaz, and it says, well, and they, they had, he had a conversation, um, but he took a wise and gentle approach to obey God as well as defy authority. Warren Wiersbe says they were courteous and didn't try to get others in trouble. They had a meek and quiet spirit. They saw the challenge as an opportunity to prove God and glorify his name. And verse 9, the beginning there tells us who was orchestrating this the whole time. God. Big G. It says, it says, and and God gave Daniel favor. Interesting thing to note, verse 9 says, gave him favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. That word favor is the Hebrew word hesed. You remember hesed from Ruth? It's that, that grace, that loving kindness, that, that um, extra mercy. Hesed was, was that just that over and above in terms of love. Um, and so here we saw it in Ruth, but here we're seeing it with Daniel as well. Um, God does not forget the people that he loves. So while the chief of eunuchs liked Daniel, looked on him kindly, showed him favor, he still had to answer to the king and his life was on the line if something happened to any one of these young men. Because remember, he didn't know the big G God. He didn't know Yahweh. So he saw absolutely nothing wrong with eating this food. And so, um, so Daniel went. He respectfully made a request and offered an alternative solution. This is, this is Daniel saying, God, I trust you so much that you're not going to make me cross this line that you have set up for me, that you're going to take care of this for me. Um, this wasn't Daniel compromising on his convictions. This wasn't saying, well, if I do look weaker than these other guys, then I'll just eat the food. That wasn't what he was saying. This was not in any way a compromise. This was Daniel saying, God is going to, God wants me to be obedient to his word. God is going to come through for me in this. There was never a doubt in his mind. Daniel still studied what the king wanted him to study. He learned the language. 
He dressed how the king wanted him to dress. He lived where the king wanted him to live. He was still a captive and still had to do certain things, but he did not let what he studied change his convictions. He lived under their rules up until the point that their rules conflicted with his belief in God. And when their rules convicted with his beliefs, he came up with a solution and he respectfully and humbly persuaded the official, the one in charge, to let him do it. He didn't defy the orders of the official. He worked with the official to change the orders. So Chuck Swindoll, he says, In a world filled with people who rebel against the divine king, it is inevitable that believers of all ages will face situations in which their convictions will be challenged. We who are parents need to prepare our children for those occasions by both teaching them God's truth and modeling integrity. And all of us who are Christians need to personally commit ourselves to living God's way regardless of the temptation to live otherwise. And so then we're going to see how this all turns out with um, Daniel 1, 17 through 21. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So how was God given the glory in this passage? They were ten times better than everyone else. Yeah. How else? The king never once knew, he probably didn't even know about this change in the diet. It's not something you would bother the king with. As long as they were strong and healthy, he's not going to care what they eat, right? So the king probably had no idea that God was still manipulating this whole situation. But, but Ashpenaz knew. And more importantly, or most importantly, Daniel and his friends knew. And God still set them up to be an authority in the kingdom. So despite King Nebuchadnezzar's plans to take Big G out of the mix, despite his plans to go in, take those things and offer them as a tribute to his God, he just put big G God in authority in his kingdom. Daniel would have been given a very secular education. He would have nothing new to learn about about Yahweh. He would have learned about Marduk, Aku, and Nebo. He would have learned language and culture. He would not have continued to learn anything about the Hebrew language. He would have learned science, astrology, a lot of superstition. And next week we're going to see 
in Daniel 2 that, that Babylon made use of magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and, and when it says Chaldeans in the ESV, uh, the way it's listed, that, that's astrologers. Um, so these are magicians dealing in the occult, enchanters that used incantations and sorcerers with spells, astrologers, the movement of the stars and their influence, diviners that sought to see the future. These are all things that Daniel is being taught. But I gave somebody Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 13. And that may be... The priests who are the Levites, or 9 through 13. 9 through 13. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So, all these practices, a bunch of these things that Daniel was being taught, are forbidden in Deuteronomy. So, why did God bless Daniel for learning all these things. He didn't practice them. And I, I know this seems weird to bring it up right now, but you're about to go home and you're about to read chapter two. And I want you to have this before you read chapter two of Daniel. Daniel did not change his convictions. He never crossed that line that he drew in the sand for God. He knew that God still wanted him to be a part of this culture, to be able to bring God into this culture, and, and as we'll see later, to, to bring God's people back after that time of punishment. So, so he... He never once used the things, these, these, these things that are forbidden that he learns. He, he would have used the language. He would have used certain things about the culture, but he never would have crossed the line. So they were blessed. Daniel and his friends were blessed. They were blessed um, physically because they were better in appearance after those, those 10 days. They were blessed mentally with the wisdom and understanding and knowledge. They were blessed spiritually. And this is the part you're going to see some next, um, next week because they had an understanding in all visions and dreams there in verse 17. But socially, he was given, Daniel was given a long life. It says, because there in verse 21, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The first year of King Cyrus, mark this there in, in your margin, 538 B.C. God allowed Daniel to be a strong influence for close to 70 years in a foreign and godless land. 
John MacArthur says, Daniel served in his influential position for 70 years. I may have put this one on the thing too. Oh, no, I didn't put a different one. Daniel served in his influential position for 70 years. His integrity and uncompromising character had far-reaching results. For when I see the wise men coming from the east, I think of the impact Daniel's theology must have had upon the Chaldeans' astrology. God gave him the influence that I believe led to the decree of Cyrus to send the people back to their land. Influence that led to the rebuilding of the wall under Nehemiah and to the reestablishing of the nation of Israel. Influence that eventually led the wise men to come crown the king who was born in Bethlehem. Daniel was behind the scenes of the history of the Messiah as well as the Messiah's people. Daniel had unlimited influence for through his prophecy he brings homage to the one who is king of kings and lord of lords who reigns forever. Daniel's influence didn't end when he, when he made it through these three years. Daniel's influence didn't end when he made it through 70 years of service. Because it's just such a neat thing to think about. Daniel was an influence in why the wise men came to see Jesus. Why they came with exceeding joy. To worship Jesus. No fault found in Daniel. That's right. And as we continue to see, it's like we talked about last week. That first half of the book is the narrative, is the um, sort of the the. Uh, Histor historical events, right? And we're going to see throughout those, those books this continued idea, or those chapters, sorry, the continued idea of, of Daniel and his friends taking a stand, finding their line, and, and refusing to cross that line. Um, and, and it is, and they, they are then found to be without fault. So as we wrap up our lesson for Daniel chapter 1, we want to pause, we want to think about um, what we see as the theme for this chapter. So we remember the theme is the main point. It's the idea the author is trying to get across. In reality, it's the idea that you're going to walk away with. And remember, there are no wrong answers, and there are many different right answers. So what are some ideas, and this can go on your... Um, at a glance, yeah, page 34. I had it marked with a tab thing. This is where we'll put it here. You can mark King Nebuchadnezzar was the king for chapter one. So what are some ideas for theme? Staying true to God, being in the world, but not of the world, right? You would have heard that one before.
How about in how Daniel dealt with Ashpenaz? Right? He went humbly and respectfully. That's the key to good relationships is humility and respect. Daniel stand for righteousness. Yeah. Daniel learns the ways of the king and his gods. Yeah. Also, the thing I didn't bring out very much, but that I want, I, I hope. I hope you heard was that God gives us the, the ability to work with excellence even in corrupt workplaces and environments. Daniel was without fault for 70 years in a godless land. Yeah, integrity. Yeah, so those will would be our um, some of those would be ideas for theme pick one write it there in your chart um, a lot of those would go with um, verses 8 verse 9 if you wanted to write the key verse with it so I'm going to turn off the camera and then we can do our discussion